If you have a Bible, would you open up with me to the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, where we're going to be this morning. If you're, uh, if you're new or you're visiting with us or you're joining us even online this morning, uh, welcome. We're, we're in a series where we've been walking through the book of Ephesians just chapter by chapter, verse by verse for several weeks now. And um, we're at a section at the end of chapter 2 that really goes all the way back to something that we, we read and, and, and I preached on several weeks ago now, back at the, the middle half of, of chapter 1. And so I kind of want to do my best to catch you up to speed because all of it sort of builds on uh, itself. And uh, what we've argued from the beginning of the series is, is that this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul back to the church that he founded in Ephesus. And uh, we know that because the book of Acts tells us about that. All the way back in Acts chapter 17 through 20, uh, the church of Ephesus was founded by the preaching of Paul that started first in the synagogue amongst the Jews. And then it was sort of like a revival broke out. The Gentiles began flooding in as well. And so you have this church now that is it has grown and, 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 and matured and developed, but Paul had left, and he finished out his missionary journey. He's, he's now back in Rome, where he's been captured, and he's in prison. So he sends this letter back to the church at Ephesus to kind of explain to them what, what happened whenever you trusted Jesus by faith. What, what, what was God up to? What is God up to in this moment? And his goal, really, in all of this is really twofold. One, to, to unify the church, to show them that what they have in Christ is more significant, more important, more um, uniting than what, than what defines them outside of that. That The differences that they have compared to, to what they have in Christ can't be compared. And then from that, to show them not only are they unified in Jesus, but there's a particular way of life that issues for those who follow Jesus. And so as we've, we've walked through this, I've said multiple times, the first three chapters are all theology. It's all Paul telling the church, this is who God is and this is what God has done. It's written even in a tone in the original language called the indicative, indicating what God has done. But then you get to chapter 3 and following and it becomes imperative. Paul changes the tone in the Greek and he starts telling them what they're supposed to do. And the big idea there is because this is who we are in Christ, Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation, because this is who we are in Christ. And these are the ways that we can live together collectively to reveal that to the world. All the way back in chapter one now, we, we, we saw that at the end of chapter one where Paul prays a very specific prayer. He tells the church, because I had heard about your faith, the thing that, that I just told you, that, that the, the father had chosen you, the son had redeemed you, the spirit had sealed you. When I heard about that faith, I prayed something very specific for you, which I continue to pray today, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and that you would know the power of God. Not knowledge like an ethereal, oh, I understand that concept, but, but an experiential encounter with the power of God. And so we saw just the last two weeks, as we studied the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul says to, to know that power, you need to understand what happened to you in salvation. That, that before Jesus, before faith, we were all in the same boat. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were, we were enslaved to our own passions and, and desires, to the ways of the world, and even to the devil himself, Paul says, so that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we all had in common prior to faith in Jesus. Bent in on each other, our hearts curved inward. We were self-seeking, self-centered people, and our desires controlled us. But, he says, saw this last, just last week, the divine solution to the human condition. But God, because he is rich in mercy with the great love that he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive together 
in Christ. It is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. So the first way that Paul says that the church experiences the power of God is a knowledge of that salvation, that apart from Jesus, we're drowning, we're dead, we're, we're hopeless, we're, we're helpless. But in faith now, something new can emerge. And so beginning in verse 11, and we're going to look at 11 through 17 this morning, the, what, what Paul shows us here is the second demonstration of the power of God. And this mirrors that, those first 10 verses. The first, first 10 verses says, before you were like this, but now because of what Christ has done, you are now like this. This does the same thing, but instead of highlighting what we all had in common, he goes and shows what we all had, what, what was differenti- differentiating the Jews and the Gentiles. Before we were all like mankind and then that we were turned in on ourselves and self-seeking, but now, now we're, we're different. Now he says, before we were different, different from each other in these ways, but now this is what we have in common. The second demonstration of the power of God is not just that he can save us, but that he can unite us. Look with me, if you will, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, therefore, remember, by the way, that's our first, this is our first and only imperative in the first three chapters. What are we to do? Remember. And he says it twice. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near." This is the word of the Lord. Uh, back in 2010, I read a book. I think it was written in 2009, actually, by a, a sociologist um, from the University of Texas. Um, it, you catch that? that? This is your opportunity to boo if you want to. Um, He's from the University of Texas. He wrote a book called The Big Sword. His name was Bill Bishop. And, and it was about how he had, as a sociologist, studied that Americans and uh, beginning in the mid to late 80s up until like the early 2000s, had begun this sociological ph- phenomenon that he called the big sort, uh, self-selecting, self-segregating ourselves into, into like-minded communities and ideologies. And so what, he, what, he had, what led him to this study was he had been watching the, the exit polls of both, I think, the, the Bush-Gore... Uh, the Bush-Gore presidential election and the Bush-Kerry. And so both of those were very, very close elections. But he said as he would watch the exit poll interviews, people would come out and the interviewer would say, well, who do you think is going to be named president? And they would say, well, Al Gore, of course. And they'd say, well, why, of course? He'd say, because I don't know one single person voting for George Bush. Or George Bush, of course. Well, why do you say that? Well, I don't know one single person that's voting for John Kerry. And he, so he thought, this is interesting. These, these elections are really, really close. But everyone's coming out of the exit poll saying, well, there's no way it's going to be close. I don't know another person who would vote the other way. And so he did the research and did the studies. And sure enough, what he'd seen was with upward mobility amongst the middle class in America from the 80s on, we had started just kind of moving into communities of 
of like-mindedness, both politically and religiously and otherwise. And there's nothing really shocking about that. Some would say, you know, birds of a feather flock together. We're kind of given towards homogeneity. But, but he said, you know, here's, here's where he said this could go if this trend continues. Because his argument was, was that it, it's not good for the human species, history would tell us, for us to exist in echo chambers where we all pat each other on the back continuously. Because what tends to happen is first we all agree with each other, and then we find someone who doesn't agree with us, and then we label them, and then we begin to demonize them, and then we dehumanize them, and then we try to exterminate them. That's the way human beings have treated the other, kind of as long as we've had written history. And so to prove this, he said, you know, that, that if, if everyone's like-minded, it doesn't trend towards the middle, towards a kind of a understanding of the other. It trends towards extreme. And they did an experiment. They took five kids, and four of the kids were in on the experiment, and one was the, the test case or the subject. And so we'll call him Johnny. I don't remember what his name was. But they would go. They would ask the four kids in different rooms, five kids in different rooms, uh, what's, your, what's your favorite this, that, or the other? And included in that was what was your favorite color? So if they got all of them in their room alone, they would get Johnny to say, well, my favorite color is blue. Okay. And then they would put them all in the room together. And they would, in the room together, have them answer the questions they'd asked in isolation. Although four of them hadn't been asked this, they were kind of in on the, the scheme. The one hasn't. And so they would start with the first kid and say, you know, Timmy, what's your favorite color? And he would say, well, my favorite color is green. And then the next one would say, well, my favorite color is that, yeah, um, is that YouTube? Um, anyway, <laughs> the second one would say, well, well, my favorite color is green, and I really don't like blue. And the third kid would say, well, my favorite color is green. I think blue is stupid. And the fourth kid would say, my favorite color is green, and I think people who like blue are stupid. And then they would get to Johnny and say, Johnny, what's your favorite color? What do you think he said? Green. Every time. Because what would happen in these communities of like-mindedness, the trend was that even if someone did have a dissenting opinion, the more escalating the, the, the rhetoric got, the more uh, hostile that it got, the more likely it was that the guy that was actually on the other side of the fence would come over on the other side just to keep the peace because he didn't want to be isolated. He didn't want to be alone. And so Bishop suggested that if this continues, again, this was written in 2009, if this continues, we will find ourselves at each other's throat. I think he was right. <laughs> Here we are some 13, 14 years later, and everything that this guy predicted has kind of come to fruition. What's the cure to that? How do you stop that train? Because some of you would say, like this morning, this morning you'd say, well, that's, Gib, that's just human nature. That's the way we work. And I would say, exactly. And we just spent two weeks talking about human nature. We just spent two weeks talking about what human nature does in isolation and, and apart from the, the grace of God himself, which again, the only cure, according to Paul in those first 10 verses, to human nature is grace. Because if you don't have grace, you have competition. You, you, have, you have tribes. You, you have dissenting voices competing with one another. And then that turns in on itself. And what we become then, we just disintegrate down to the lowest common denominator of our own selfish desires. I mean, when you're built on, I want to satisfy self, as Paul says in those first three verses, when, when your being exists and you're held captive to your desires, to the desires of, of the passions of the flesh and of the mind, as Paul says, then eventually anyone who doesn't help you satisfy those desires, they become not only competition, they become an enemy. And if, those, if their desires stand in the way of your desires, someone has to go. And so Paul says the only solution to that human condition, to that 
aspect of human nature bent on itself is the radical grace of God, a God who loved us not when we got our act together, but a God while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins who made us alive. Because, he says, at the end of that section that we saw last week, we need to be a new creation so that no one can boast. It's a gift from God. It's not by works. Because if it's by works, then it makes sense that we'll self-select into like-mindedness, find an enemy, and try to snuff them out. And that's where we get now to verse 11, where Paul now turns and says, okay, so let's deal with the real issue at hand. This is what we all had in common, Jew and Gentile, dead in trespasses and sins. Enslaved to our passions and desires, we were without hope. We were by nature children of wrath. But God made us alive. And so now we can talk about the differences that exist in real time. The Gentiles, they, they, were, they were apart. They were strangers and aliens. They were foreigners to the promises of God. They had no hope because of the ordinances and the law. And, and Israel, who had these things, which, by the way, Paul says, was made with human hands. We'll talk about that in just a second. They had every right to kind of exclude them. They, they, had, they had commandments of exclusion. There was a reason for that. But now in Jesus, specifically through his blood shed on the cross, the two have been made one. So I want to show you this morning, I think, three things of the way that the power of God shows up, not just in salvation, but in community. The way the power of God shows up to unite us together. And the power of God can work even in our hearts and lives today to stop that trajectory of human nature towards fragmentation and disintegration. To stop that trajectory towards tribalism and always having to be at war with the other. That the power of God can show up even today to transform us and make us a new people, a new creation that live with one another in a very, very different way. The first way the power of God shows up is that it takes our posture and our heart from superiority and turns it towards humility. We see the power of God in our lives when we go from a position or a posture of superiority, looking down on the other, to a place of Humility. Where do I get that? Well, I get that in verse 11. And verse 11 is one of those verses we could probably spend weeks on this one verse. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't do that to you, but we could. Paul says this in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, so, so your designation, your kind of ethnicity, your, you know, your, your place of origin in the flesh, Paul says. Not in the spirit. This is kind of who you were born into as. This is who you were. You were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, that's in quotes in your translations because it's, it's, it's a slur, it's a word that the, that the Jews would have used towards Gentiles that kind of flattened all the nations of the world. Don't care if they're Roman, don't care if they're, if they're, if they're Asian, don't care if they're Greek, they're just Gentiles, just unregenerate, unregenerate or as, uh, as the Old Testament would often say, you know, they're uncircumcised Philistines. They're, they're, just, they're just those people. So Paul uses the slur, where I would think that kind of in a gathering of Jew and Gentile, when he says this, and this is read, the, the Jews may have been like, did he really call them that to their face? Like, they can hear you, Paul, that you just told them that that's what we called them. But then he says, on the back end of that, to the Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is, by, in fact, made by human hands. So then they would have gone like, did he really say that? Wait a second. So Paul's an equal opportunity offender, basically. He just, he just threw a haymaker at everyone in the room. And what he's showing them, I think, is, that, is sort of the lesson that he begins to unpack from this point forward. Namely, that, that the labels that they give to themselves and to others, they really just serve to flatten and dismiss the other. That's what labels do. 
Gentiles, I don't need to know anything about your life, your background, any nuance about your story. I don't even know how you came to the beliefs that you hold or the, the life that you live. All I know is you're a Gentile away with you. We have a word for you. We have a word for those people. And so it's a way of sort of flattening them out and, and leveling them out and, and, and getting them kind of on the same page so that, so that they can just sort of be easily dismissed. Uh, they're just Gentiles. They're those people. You know how they, you know what they eat. They're gross. They eat, they eat meat sacrificed to idols. They eat meat for, they eat pigs. Can you believe them? Look at them. So he, he shows that this is sort of the way that left to ourselves, this is the way we will treat one another. We'll, we'll slap a label on you, not so we can define you, so we can dismiss you. So we don't have to think about you. So you can just be that thing. But much like the book, The Big Sort, suggests, and even Paul talks about here, how we wind up being children of wrath. The pattern of children of wrath is that we start with dismissal, we dismiss someone, then eventually we'll dehumanize them, and ultimately we'll wind up destroying them. So they go from a people with a story, with a legacy, with a reason for why they do what they do, to, eh, they're just that. And then once they're that for a while, they're not even really a human, they're a thing. And when they're a thing, oh. We can get rid of them if we want to. I mean, look at the conflicts raging around us right now. It's not between two particular groups that see the other as humans. They're things. And so they can be destroyed. And this is part of the problem, that if, if someone you know, doesn't hold your viewpoints, your ideology, your beliefs, or whatever, you can call, consider them unworthy of even being considered human. And, and once they're no longer human, it may just makes sense to get rid of them and to eliminate them. So Paul opens up this discourse, makes everyone in the room uncomfortable. Uh, Jews, by the way, you are the circumcision, but that's made with human hands. And anytime he talks about something being made with human hands, he's talking about something that's opposite of the divine. There's stuff that's made with God's hands, like he'll talk about later on in this book, or like we even saw just this last week when we were talking about the first 10 verses of chapter 2. God did something. We didn't make ourselves alive. He made us alive. And so that's the differentiation you have circumcision, which is something we use to define ourselves, but anyone can do that. All you need is a, maybe not even a willing male and some you know, scissors or a knife. Problem solved. This problem that we have, though, God has to do something. So he puts both groups in an awkward state where they're looking at, these are the things that we've defined ourselves with or defined them with. And the only way, the only way to turn that ship around, the only way to... to to reorient the, the, the trajectory of human nature into these warring tribes that are dismissive and dehumanizing and ultimately trying to destroy each other is the grace of God. It's the only way. And that's what Paul said at the, end of, at the end of the section we saw last week. Peek back up real quick in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Apart from that... Apart from the, the grace of God in our lives, we will use anything, any rule, any obligation of God to try to use those things to satisfy self. And we will determine that anyone that stands in the way of that then is an enemy. They're, they're worthy of dismissal. They're worthy of being dehumanized. And ultimately, one day, they'll be worthy of destruction. The only way to stop that train, Paul says, is to see that we all got in by grace. By grace alone. We call it here at Living Hope a, a, a gospel culture, a way of seeing one another that, that, that reframes who we are, that we're made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God, we're worthy of dignity and honor. We can never be dismissive of the other. 
because they're stamped with the image of God. You can't, you can't dehumanize the other because they're, they're made in God's image. And then if they're made in God's image, and we can see, as we'll see in just a moment, Christ died for them as well, then the potential exists for them to be redeemed. And everything you find unsightly or everything you find, you know, maybe worthy of derision, it's something that God can actually change in their lives. And you don't do it by force because the Spirit of God does it. We're sealed with God's Spirit. We're given that guarantee. We didn't get in by effort. We didn't get in by merit. So they won't either. So this whole construct is what Paul is setting up, that that you have to get off your high horse. You have to get off your sense of superiority and embrace the humility that comes from grace and grace alone. It's the only way the church is going to be any different than the world. The only way. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be children of wrath like the rest of mankind, bent and turned on one another, slapping labels on groups and people so that we can dismiss them and eventually dehumanize them and maybe even destroy them. And so Paul says the way that we reframe that, the way that we receive grace and we understand grace so that we move in the opposite direction of the flow of the world is that we have to understand that we went from alienation to reconciliation. We went from alienation to reconciliation. That's what he tells the Gentiles here. Again, you have mixed community, both of which are now sitting there hopefully offended by Paul, so that Paul can start building out something altogether different. Again, verse 12, he says, okay, we need to remember something. Verse 11, remember, Gentiles, you were once called the uncircumcision by these people who were circumcised with human hands. But remember, remember something. This is what God did in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Alienation, the uh, big, big word that Paul uses there. He uses actually like three words in that one verse that he uses nowhere else in any of his writings, which makes for really, really hard interpretation. But alienation is essentially this idea that they, they don't have citizenship. They don't have the ability to get into Israel in the same way as Israel, and they're cut off from the promises and the benefits of being a part of God's people in that way. So because they're cut off, prior to faith in Jesus, they're separated from God. And Paul says they're, they're not only separated from God, they're without hope. And they're without God. Which, funny, funny enough, the word he uses there is atheos, or the word from which we would get our term atheist. And it's, it's almost like ironic that Paul uses that word, because these are Gentiles in Ephesus, literally sitting probably in the shadow of of the temple of Artemis that was made to a foreign deity that they had probably worshipped for the majority of their life. And Paul has the audacity to say, yeah, you were really atheists. They're like, but but there's the temple, bro. And he's like, Ned, that's not a god. It's not a real thing. And because of that, you had no hope. And so he tells them they have to understand their, their, their state outside of Christ. They were without citizenship. They were cut off from the promises. They don't have the benefits the only way they're going to get in is if God moves in their direction, if God does something for us. And that's exactly what he says happens. Back in, at the end of verse 12, he says, you were, you were cut off, you were strangers and aliens, having no hope or promise or without God in the world, verse, thir- verse 13. But now, here it is, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says, God reconciled you by uniting you to Jesus. You were outside. You, as we saw last week, you were dead. You were without hope. But God connected you. He married you to Jesus. You are united to him. You are bound to him by, by the person of, 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 of God through the Holy Spirit himself. 
It's the way that you got in. And since you got in, all of those benefits that you were once cut off from are now yours. I worked for a, a propane company back when I was finishing my undergrad and first got married. And it was a mom and pop shop. It was named after the, the, the family that had kind of started it. And right before I'd started there, I got kind of hired by them. And it was, I mean, it ran like a mom and pop place. Like they had everyone could, anyone who was friends of the family could charge. And the charge accounts were written on, you know, old shreds of paper hidden in a desk somewhere. It was podunk and backwards as all get out. But a big energy company bought them out, bought out like 15 propane companies in the area and brought them under this one conglomerate. And when that happened, it was like we went from like, I was doing accounting, which was when the, the auditor would show up, you would you know, go get a bunch of you know, carbon copies on and say, here's what we did. And they brought in computers that could do this stuff for you and spreadsheets. And so we, we kind of got absorbed into this larger corporate entity. And then they set us down and they said, oh, by the way, now that you're a part of this group, you get, here's your health benefits and here's your dental benefits. And there's a 401k matching program. And I'm like, what? This is amazing. Oh, I, you know, I didn't do anything. I just showed up for work one day and the big corporate machine came in and gave me all these benefits and gifts. And oh, by the way, all the really backwoods way of doing things, they told them that's wrong. We're supposed to get up to speed with technology. And so it was like, I had an advocate as well. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Paul says it's kind of what happened with the Gentiles. You got subsumed into this thing that brought all of these benefits, and you now have an advocate who goes on your behalf, who, who, who has made peace with, with, between you and God, has reconciled you. You're no longer aliens. You're no longer outsiders. You've been brought in. When you think about the current refugee crisis that's going on around the globe, imagine what it must be like to become a citizen in a place that has rights and benefits connected to it. When you went from wandering and sojourning, as we'll see next week, which is what Paul says we all were spiritually, to those who now have citizenship, have rights, have benefits, that's what God has done for us in Jesus. And Paul says that he did it specifically through his shed blood on the cross. And that's a key feature in this whole idea, is that when Jesus dead, died, he didn't just die in our place to, for, for a particular people, he died for the world. His blood was shed for every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That blood was shed on the benefit or behalf of the people of, of the world. So when, when Christ died, that blood is what unites us to, to, to him. Again, back in verse, in verse 13, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We are united by the blood of Christ. So therefore, it's open to all people. Every group, there's no more superiority. You can't claim to have some sort of birthright by virtue of the, the nation state you were born into. If the blood of Jesus was shed for every nation on the planet, then everyone who turns to him in faith is a part of that family of God, which I think by just logical extrapolation means you can't be a racist and be a Christian. You can't hold to some sort of ethnocentrism that diminishes or demeans the other irreconcilable with the blood of Christ. N.G. Wright says it like this, if our churches are still divided in any way along racial or cultural lines, Paul would say that our gospel, our very grasp of the meaning of Jesus' death is called into question. I think he's right. Which lastly means that we need to see what God did for us in the shed blood of Christ. He took us, the power of God takes us from a state of hostility to a state of peace. From hostility 
to peace. Paul uses uh, what may sound like a metaphor to us, that, that, that for he himself is our peace, verse 14, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. Here it is, the dividing wall of hostility. What does that mean? Well, uh, many scholars speculate that that just means that the, the law, the law was the thing that kept the Gentiles out. But I, I don't think that that's it. I think he's actually talking about a physical wall that existed in the temple. And if you know the way that the temple was constructed, especially in the day of King Herod, but the, the temple had a wall that could include the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could, could convert and become a part of, uh, uh, of Israel, and they could, they could be, get in on that, but they could not go into the sanctuary. There was a wall that was erected that said, this is for you, but you can't go any further. John Stott explains it in his commentary like this. He says, the dividing wall of hostility was the standing symbol for Gentile exclusion. It was a notable feature of the magnificent temple built in Jerusalem by Herod the Great. The temple building itself was constructed on an elevated platform. Round it was the court of the priests, east of the court was the court of Israel, and further east the court of women. These three courts, for the priests, the laymen, and the laywomen of Israel respectively, were all on the same elevation as the temple itself. From this, from this level, one descended five steps to a walled platform, and then on the other side of the wall, 14 more steps to another wall, beyond which was the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. This was a spacious court running right around the temple in its inner courts. From any part of it, the Gentiles could look up and view the temple, but were not allowed to approach it. They were caught, cut off from it by the surrounding wall, which was one and a half meter stone barricade on which were displayed at intervals warning notices in Greek and Latin that read, trespassers will be ex executed. So when Paul's talking about the, the wall of hostility, I think that's what he's talking about. And catch that he said that the temple was even erected in such a way so as to have an elevated platform and a lower one. You literally could look down on them. Oh, look at them down there, the uncircumcised. Oh, cute. And so Paul says that in Jesus and his blood shed on the cross, that wall's gone. And we're all brought into this new temple. And this new temple is the people of God who've been now given the, the grace of God and the mercy of God, marked and sealed by the spirit of God. And that death on the cross then killed the hostility. There's no more warring faction between us. There's no longer insider and outsider. We are both now brought in through the blood of Jesus. And so I think what Paul is getting at here, especially for a church that he's trying to unify, is that if you do not allow your righteous indignation towards outsiders to be put to death, you will remain hostile to them and you will actually think that it's righteous. If you don't bring your scrutiny of the other, your constant evaluation as to whether or not they're measuring up, if you don't bring it under the microscope of the grace of God himself and allow God to examine it and kill it, not only will you feel hostility towards the other, you'll probably feel righteous in doing so. So Paul's saying, come under the examination of what God's grace means. He's taken insider and outsider, Jew and Gentile, and they're no longer those two things separate of one another. They are the one thing now in Jesus. He's taken the two and made them one. He's put to death the hostility, and the outcome of their salvation is peace with God and peace with one another. It's a radically new way of seeing the world, a radically new way of getting along in the world. The only hope for the world that is bent on homogeneity that leads to othering all other people. The only hope is for the church to be a people made up of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, as Paul will say later. All the groups, all the ways that we dissect one another and put each other under these labels. No, we are the people of God who are made one in the, in, in the person of Jesus by the shed blood for all human beings on the cross. So two things, and I'll be done. 
What hostility did you bring with you today? If Christ has died for it and put it to death by tearing down those walls, which one are you trying to erect in your own heart and life? What justified vengeance do you feel that you have towards that group, whatever that group may be? What label have you been slapping on a particular group so that you can dismiss them and maybe even dehumanize them a little bit? Be careful, lest it not just destroy them, but it destroys you as well. What grudge do you nurse because it feels righteous to do so? And if the gospel is the death of superiority or the feelings of superiority that we all sometimes are prone to, then we have to bring ourselves under the scrutiny of of the grace of God and once again be reminded we've been brought into this thing by sheer grace. The Prince of Peace advocates on our behalf. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. That's the great hope of the gospel, that we are sent out into the world to model something entirely different than the way the world segregates everyone into groups and factions and then puts them at war with one another. God, help us this morning to be just that. May we be united around your table in such a way so we can let go of all the labels that we bring with us, all the dismissiveness that we nurse in our heart, all the ways that we feel superior to the other. And instead, God, be reminded once again It's your grace and your grace alone that unites us to Jesus by faith. And you've given it to us, not not because we were good enough. You gave it to us because you're good. And your goodness goes on forever. So, Lord, would that reshape our vision of the world? Would it reshape the way we see outsiders and others? Would it reshape the love that we extend, especially to those who desperately need to see it, lived out in and amongst us? Would you do this by the power of your spirit in our lives even today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.